If you are a parent, you may remember at some point sending your child off on an overnight trip. Maybe it's a field trip, maybe studying abroad, maybe they've just gone up to college. Even if it's not your kid, you've probably seen your friends do it. And if you're at the college, you've probably seen other parents as they leave their children off for, for school. There are always those last minute admonitions. Did you pack this? Did you remember that? Don't forget too. When my dad was preparing me to go off for some overnight trip, he would always say, remember who and whose you are. In our text from Jeremiah, he's sending the exiles off. Babylon has come and, and taken the elite away from Jerusalem, taking them to Babylon, where they would spend a couple of generations in exile. Now, Jeremiah has spent chapters and chapters, years and years, warning Israel, warning the people of Judah, that if they kept doing what they were doing, it was going to result in a very bad thing. Nonetheless, when it was time and when the exile began, there were no I told you so's. No, see, I told you this was going to happen. Did you not listen? Parental guidance. As they went off, he told them, remember who and whose you are. Don't give up the faith. Don't give in to the dark feelings of homesickness, the sadness, the longing, perhaps even the despair, thinking that God had left. Just keep living. Now that seems like pretty simple instructions at times when life isn't how you thought it was going to be. It may be difficult to keep going. Here we might take a lesson from the beloved children's film, Finding Nemo. Dory, the little blue fish, if you're not familiar, kept advising, just keep swimming. Keep the faith that you will find Nemo. Now, Dory and Nemo's dad encountered a lot of trouble. Because faith doesn't keep you from trouble, but faith does keep you going. These two little fish had faith that they were going to find Nemo, and that kept them going. So simply put, Jeremiah tells us, keep the faith. Because God is faithful, and that faith will get you through this. Stanley Hauerwas has a book called Resident Aliens. In this book, he argues that this is not really our home. Our home is the kingdom of heaven. In the meantime, this is where we reside. And so we are called to keep the faith and to live according to our kingdom values, even when it doesn't look so much like the kingdom when we look around. No matter what the values are where we reside, this is not our home. 
our values are still loving God and loving neighbor. Even in a place that considers God irrelevant and our neighbors are dispensable at best. We keep living, remembering whose we are. Even in the midst of a society that doesn't believe, even in the midst of society that values exploitation and profit above human life, we keep living, remembering whose we are. In our gospel lesson, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's living in the kingdom, having announced that it has come. Despite living in the kingdom, his physical presence was in the Roman province called Palestine. He went about teaching people the faithfulness of God and admonishing people to be faithful to God. Geographically, he left home. As the story takes place, he's in the region between Galilee and Samaria. Galilee was the place he called home. Samaria was a land of apostates. It was a place that was very different from the Jewish parts of the province. In Samaria, they had a different understanding of God and of the religion that worships this God. Their Jewish cousins didn't have much use for them, and so there was a lot of tension and animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. But if you recall, as you read through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus seems to have a lot of affinity for the Samaritans. Though they are different, they are other, they are considered not as good as, he still reaches out to them in grace. And so in this place, as he's skirting the edge of Samaria, these ten lepers approach him. Now lepers were outcasts from society. They were dreadfully ill with an illness that was presumably very contagious. But more than that, they were considered to be ill because of some sinfulness about them. And they couldn't go near anyone lest the contagion of their waste, their sin, waste someone else's flesh. Of course, Jesus didn't let that bother him. Jesus touched and walked among ill people all the time. And so as they approached, he engaged with them. He spoke to them, things that most people would not have done. And he told them to go show themselves to the priests. See, when a leper becomes well, they go to the priest, and the priest examines them to make sure that they really are made clean again. And so he sends them to the priest. And along the way, they discover, oh my goodness, I'm well again. All this leprosy has gone away. Now imagine realizing that after a long, indefinite period of time, you can go home again. You can rejoin your family. You can go back to school or church or work. Imagine just realizing that you've got your life back. How exciting 
that would be. It's very easy to take that and just run with it. And maybe forget to stop and thank God and praise God for the blessings that one has received. Then one stops and goes back praising God, thanking Jesus for what has happened to him. Now, maybe this one, because he's a Samaritan, couldn't continue keeping company with his other former leprous people. Maybe he had nowhere to go. Maybe even being clean, his family would not have wanted him. Or maybe he just wanted to show his gratitude beyond the basic courtesies. To take a moment, even in the midst of this joyful thing that has happened, to stop and remember God and what God has done in his life, praising God. This one who turns and goes back, praising God, is not the one you might expect. He isn't a Jew. He's not like Jesus. He's not from Galilee or Judea. He's from Samaria. I mean, in Samaria, do they even praise God? <laughs> Jesus knows he's a Samaritan. And he makes a big deal of it. Not in pointing him out as someone who really had no business being here and now, but as someone who's faithful, someone who knows what it is to recognize and name one's blessings, praising God. Jesus emphasizes that this one is a foreigner, showing the gratitude of an exile who is living outside of his home territory. Gratitude of one who knows that by all rights, Jesus shouldn't care about him. The gratitude of one who recognizes that Jesus would have been perfectly justified in healing the nine Jews and leaving him out of it. But instead of literally leaving him to rot, Jesus includes him. Because Jesus is no respecter of boundaries, particularly boundaries that we as human beings create between ourselves and some perceived other. Jesus doesn't care where one is from or what language one speaks. And it's clear from this, he doesn't even care what religion one is. Because stigma doesn't matter to Jesus. We have a lot of stigma in the world. To start with, let's look at the month of October. This is LGBT History Month. There's a Pride event taking place right now in Atlanta. At GCSU, it's Pride Month. October is also Mental Health Awareness Month. Both of those things carry a great stigma despite efforts to destigmatize it. But there are other stigmas as well. Certain kinds of illness, a non-normative physical appearance, 
skin color, ethnicity, poverty, homelessness, addiction, conviction record. I heard someone say recently that the sound of courage is a foreign accent, and yet we consider that a boundary that mustn't be crossed. Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Jesus was simply true to who he was, this person who was the embodiment of God's grace. And Jesus asks us to be true to who we are as well, ignoring stigmata, reaching out in grace, not because of who others are, but because of who and whose we are. We have a faith that has the power to bring shalom, health, wellness, wholeness. And it has the power to bring that to others but it's a faith that can bring us that shalom too, if we are willing to embrace it, which means laying aside boundaries. If we are faithful, we will not only be made well, we will be made whole. We live in a land that is not our home, yet we live as though we are living grace in a graceless world, bringing wholeness to a broken world, speaking peace in an angry and fearful world. That's your parental guidance as you head off. Shalom. Be whole. Remember whose and who you are. For the glory of God. I invite you to stand as you are able and join in singing hymn number 39, Great is Thy... Please join me in the prayer for illumination. <coughs> Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. By your Spirit, make yourself known to us through the reading and preaching of your word, that we might be faithful witnesses in this life and joyful companions in the next, even with Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our first scripture reading is from the prophet Joel, in the second chapter. Listen for God's word to you today. O children of Zion, be glad. And rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. 
Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Our psalm is the 65th. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed, O you who answer prayer. To you all flesh shall come. When deeds of iniquity overwhelm us, you forgive our transgressions. Happy are those whom you choose and bring near to, your, to live in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with deliverance, O God of our salvation. You are the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. By your strength you established the mountains. You are girded with might. You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. Those who live at earth's farthest bounds are awed by your signs. You make the gateways of the morning and the evening shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide the people with grain, for so you have prepared it. Your water, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with richness. The pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Our New Testament reading comes from the second letter to Timothy in the fourth chapter. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And from the Gospel of Luke in the 18th chapter, verses 9 to 14. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these others. I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The wondrous day of the Lord. Several prophets speak of it. It's a paradoxical day because it is both awful and wonderful at the same time. It is the day when God will bring about the final judgment. But it's also a day to look forward to as a day of restoration. This is when God takes over. The prophet Joel uses the imagery of the natural world to prepare the people for this day of the Lord. In his time, drought and locusts threatening a famine. Elsewhere, these images are employed to describe an invasion by an army. Either way, the people are scared. And so, over the course of his prophecy, Joel calls the people to lament and to prepare for the day of the Lord. When a disaster threatens, Lament is indeed called for. But Joel assures us that God hears our lamentation. An invasion may very well be at hand, but God, Joel assures us, will protect the people. And after this message of hope, Joel calls the people together to await God's divine judgment. Now the idea of Divine judgment is, at least in our time and place, at once frightening and trivial. See, if we actually stop to think about God's judgment, we might shake in our shoes a little bit. What would that mean for our community? What would that mean for each of us? Frankly, we'd rather not think about it. So we tend not to think about it. It becomes a part of the mythology in the background of our sacred texts. But if we really considered the inevitability and the gravity of it, we might just fear it. So we don't really take it as seriously as we should. To take God's judgment seriously requires a healthy dose of humility. 
as a species, we are not very good at humility, especially for a people for whom self-sufficiency is the hallmark of our society. Dependence on God is not something that we admit easily. Now, throughout the Gospel of Luke, we're told of several righteous people. These whom Luke notes to be righteous are not the exalted leaders. They're ordinary people who are willing to be humble before God. The thing that makes them righteous is their obedience to God. Now, piety does play into righteousness, but it does not guarantee it in and of itself. Today's parable indeed illustrates this well. The self-satisfied, pious man is far from humble before the Lord. He's pretty secure in the idea that his actions justify him. After all, he doesn't just meet the requirements of the law, he goes above and beyond. So he feels pretty sure that he's all right with God. He's so sure, in fact, that he even gives thanks for not being one of those other people. You know, the sinners. Near him and yet keeping a respectful distance from the symbols of God's very presence, we find the tax collector. Tax collectors, as our young people told us this morning, tend to be despised by their neighbors. They were notorious for skimming. See, Rome had a deal with those who collected the taxes. As long as Rome got their cut, they didn't care what else the tax collectors did. And so these tax collectors would overcharge the people, keeping whatever came out on top as a hefty profit for themselves, while at the same time exploiting and impoverishing others, even their neighbors. You might even say they're the pharmaceutical CEOs of their day. They were seen as collaborators in an occupied territory. Now, collaborators tend to have a pretty bad reputation. You might recall some of the retribution that was carried out in European nations after World War II, where those who were collaborated were publicly humiliated and punished. Both of the men in the parable today might be considered <coughs> collaborators. Clearly, the Pharisee would not consider himself such. It is more obvious with the tax collector but the Pharisees kept their heads down under Rome's occupation. And so both had to figure out how to navigate the political situation and come out a little bit ahead of the game. Both were captive to a reality bigger than and beyond their influence. You might say that these two men were not quite as different from each other as the Pharisee thought. The difference is not in their stations in society. The difference is not even which one is good and which one is bad. The difference comes in their attitudes before God. The justified man was the one who humbled himself. 
lamenting his sinfulness with true regret, recognizing that he is not what God created him to be. Meanwhile, the Pharisee could only brag about his piety. He's the one in worship every week, perfect Sunday school attendance, serves as a church officer, is present for every event, but then lives his life convinced he's done what's needed, and even more, while going about collaborating with the empire of his day. Sure that he is all that God has created him to be. I think there's a little bit of both men in each of us. We like to think that we're good and humble before the Lord. But again, as human beings, humility does not come easily. We have a tacit acknowledgement that we're not quite what God has created us to be, while at the same time being pretty content with what we are complacent about our place in the world, keeping our heads down while stronger forces exploit and extort. And sometimes, if we're really honest, we brag too. Sometimes we even brag to God. The day of the Lord comes for both of these men. They both stand under divine judgment, as do we. But the day of the Lord isn't just a day of judgment. It's also a day of hope, a day of God's grace. God is a merciful God whose steadfast love endures. But we must be careful not to try and jump for that grace too easily or too soon. Humility demands that we recognize how we fall short. We have to receive God's grace in humility. But we are always somewhere between judgment and grace. Not being what God created us to be, but knowing that God loves us too much to let us be what we are. The day of the Lord brings restoration to our creative purpose, abundant life, and a grace that encompasses us. Paul tells us something about that hope, where he is standing a little closer to grace. See, Paul wrote this letter to his acolyte on the eve of his death, imprisoned in Rome, pretty much sure that he's done everything that he can. Now, at first blush, it may seem like Paul is being very boastful, but it's an admonishment, an encouragement, because Paul knows that even though his work is done, the work, of God's people is not done. So he encourages us, as he has done what he can do, as he has finished the race, he encourages us on that journey as well. Still somewhere between judgment and grace, 
but still raising our heads in the midst of empire to speak out for God's love and justice and mercy. So we are called to take seriously this day of the Lord, do all that God has commanded us and more in humility and in obedience, in repentance, assured of God's judgment, but also assured of God's grace. For God's glory. Amen. I invite you to stand and join our voices in singing hymn number 846, Fight the Good Fight. <laughs> 